0: Thank you so much, Mike and team. Isn't it special to come on a Sunday morning and worship the Lord together? sweet to think of the great love that God has for us and just be encouraged and to encourage each other. Uh, It's fun for me to be here with you today. Uh, We're grateful that Daniel is back at uh, Bethany Baptist in Edwards. It's such a fun thing to be in relationship with y'all and with this church here in Washington. It's fun to see how God has continued to use this church to uh, proclaim the gospel and to to help others have joy in their life in God, and so that's just such a sweet thing to be part. And relation in relationship with you all. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, This is a a message from a series uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 that uh, I had a few months ago. It was a series, though, that impacted my life in a dramatic way, perhaps more so than any other series I've I've ever done. It was a little bit different, too, because, uh, like for instance, today we're going to look at not even a half of a verse primarily. We're going to look at about a third of a verse today, Um, but uh, it's such a practical thing. It's such a challenging thing for me to think about, well, what is this issue of God's call for me to love others, particularly others in the body of Christ? And so uh, I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. If you have a Bible exactly like mine, it's going to be on page 1220. Um, And so let's stand as we read the scripture together. I'm just going to read seven and a half verses together. Um, from 1 Corinthians 13. Of course, this chapter is sandwiched in between these two chapters that, that deal with uh, the, the difficulty of division uh, caused by uh, the, a confusion regarding spiritual gifts and caused by spiritual pride. Uh, this chapter is so purposeful in Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... It does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. May God encourage us through his word today. Please be seated and then let's pray and let's ask that God would change us and transform us by his word through the gospel. Father in heaven, we're thankful to be able to come together around your word. We're thankful to have sung praises to you that remind us of the depth of your love for us. Lord, what a wonder it is that you would love us. We are are, uh, by nature children of wrath, and yet we are adopted into your family and become children of love. Father, help us to be imitators of you, having received this great love with you loved us that we would love one another. And by this, others would know that we're disciples of Jesus, that we love one another. And so, Father, teach us to apply this truth to our lives in a very active and specific and practical way today in, in this particular local church. I pray, O oh Father, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Apostle Paul begins in a letter to a young pastor whom he is mentoring uh, by talking about the centrality of love in the church. He would write to Timothy, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love indeed is the sum of the Christian life. Love first toward God, but also love toward one another. Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 1.5, Timothy, this is the purpose that we preach, that we teach, that uh, we share sound doctrine in the gospel, and that is that love would dominate Jesus' church. So my aim this morning is that God would kindle within our hearts a zeal to love each other, to love one another in the local church. My aim in teaching, it's not eloquence, it's not emotional lift, it's not even so much theological sharpening today as it is the sanctifying of our hearts in practical love for each other. And I ask that you would pray for your own soul today along with me, that we would each pray that God would help us to repent of our self-focus in our relationships in the church and grow in God-glorifying love for others in this family. You see, love is is the goal, the ultimate goal, of all true Bible teaching, especially as we open up this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read from a translation that I don't normally recommend, but I think it says things in a way that's so picturesque that uh, it's helped me. From 1 Corinthians 13.1, from the message. If I speak with human eloquence and with angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. Uh, That paints a picture for me. I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. In other words, the church's message, as beautiful as it is in its truth, becomes as annoying and irritating as the constant creaking of a rusty gate in the ears of our God. If our teaching, if our gospel witness is not also combined with love for one another. The church could bless many with powerful sermons, with Bible studies, with doctrinal dissertations. But all of this words, all of this teaching would be painful to the ears of God if our words were not combined with love for one another. The message continues If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything as plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I am bankrupt without love. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do I believe that? Do I believe that love is so central to my life in bringing glory to God? Do I believe that nothing matters to God like love matters to God? The first measure of any believer's walk with God is not thoroughly how thoroughly we know the Bible. It's not how disciplined we are in our quiet times or how effective we are in leading family devotions. It's not how joyful we are in singing praise songs. It's not how close we feel to God as we pray. It is not how much we sacrifice for the poor of this world. It's not how committed we are to serving in the local church. It's possible to have all those things in absolute, complete order and yet deeply grieve the heart of God. The first measure of any Christian's walk with God is the measure of our love for other believers. If I get up every morning at 4 o'clock and have two hours in the Word and in prayer, if two days out of every week I fast, if I spend countless hours in serving, teaching Sunday school, going on mission trips, If I overcome all the temptations that wage war against my soul, if I give 80% of my income as a tithe to the church, if I give up my life on the mission field for the gospel, but I do not love my fellow brother or sister in my own local church, I'm spiritually impoverished, bankrupt. Love is the sum of the Christian faith, love first toward God and then toward one another. Now Paul is not teaching that loving one another is the only thing that matters in the church. The church in worshiping God must also live purely in obedience to God's commands. The church in worshiping God must also faithfully preach the gospel, the whole counsel of God to the world. The church in worshiping God must remain healthy in sound doctrine. The church in worshiping God must also care for the poor and the needy, the worship the Church in worshipping God must strive to disciple every believer to completion in Christ, but here's the principle we learned from 1 Corinthians 13. Love for other church members, it's not the only thing that matters to God. But without love, nothing else we do matters to God. If we come convinced that love is the sum of the Christian life, we're going to ask a number of questions. We're going to ask, what does it mean to love? Now this world and our own flesh have really messed up the definition of love to such a degree that few, even in the body of Christ, could answer this question biblically. What does it mean to love? Many think of love as some positive affirmation in a, of another's life choices. If you affirm them in whatever plans or decisions they make for their own life, then you love them. If you don't give that affirmation for whatever plans or life choices another person let that makes, they say, you don't love them. You don't love me. Others think of love as a warm emotion, a, a nice sentimental feeling. Others consider love to be the equivalent of charity if we care for the poor and attend to their needs, willingness to give food and clothing. But these definitions are actually contrary to what the Bible teaches about love. The de- definition of love that I believe is drawn from Scripture is this love is the giving of oneself. In diligent pursuit of God's eternal happiness for others for the purpose of glorifying God. Now this definition is lifted from the Old and New Testament, but perhaps is is best crystallized in John 3.16. This definition is drawn from the kind of love God has for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Now there are four parts of, of this definition of love that are drawn from God's love for us as described in John 3.16. First is that love gives oneself. It's personal. Uh, it's always close up. It's not merely a giving of our possessions, but a, a giving of our very own selves. God so loved the world that he gave his own son. Jesus loved us that he gave up himself. Love's focus is never upon receiving, but upon giving, giving, giving. You know, the moment that we ask the question, what am I getting out of this relationship, is the moment that love no longer is the ruling principle in our hearts. Because love is always outward. We're able to love because God supplies us first with his love. And along with his love come everything that we need. So our soul is satisfied in God. And it's out of the complete satisfaction of every need that then we're then able to love, give of ourselves. Because we're not looking for others to satisfy our own needs. Those needs have been met by God in Christ. And so now we're able to look at others and not ask the question, what can you do to benefit my life? What am I getting out of this relationship? And unless I have a really good answer for that, I don't have a lot of time and energy for you. No, the Christian is is looking upward. God, fill me. And God does. And then out of the overflow of his abundant supply for our lives, we're able to give ourselves. Second part of this definition that's so helpful is that love diligently pursues. It's active in pursuit of others. It it takes the initiative to act and then it perseveres in acting. So, love, it always makes the first move, but it also makes the second move and the third move and the fourth move as well. We don't simply say, Well, I I called them twice and they didn't return my call, so. No, love says, Well, that means I'm going to take another initiative. I'm going to keep pursuing in love. For their eternal happiness, for the glory of God. Love is initiating. This definition also tells us that love diligently pursues God's eternal happiness for another. That love doesn't always pursue the, person, the things that the person wants us to pursue for them, but it always pursues the thing that is best for them, that will bring their ultimate happiness, their ultimate gladness. <clears throat> Again, many people want us to approve of their life choices, even if those choices invite God's wrath. Invite a separation of that person from God's reward, from his, his, his person, from their happiness. And so love cannot approve of anything that would cause a person to be unhappy forever and ever. So love envisions the person on that day when they stand before God to give an account of their life. And love says, on that day, I want you to look at the ways that I've acted towards you. And I am deeply concerned that you would look at me and be able to say, you acted in such a way all through my life so that this day would be happy. And if your love was actually influential in their life, they would look at you and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. This day is the happiest day of my existence because of the way you loved me. Thank you. That's what love does. It pursues that person's eternal happiness. In Jesus and then love's purpose it's ultimately is bound up in God's glory so the first focus of our love is always horizontal or excuse me vertical and not horizontal love's aim is not that man will be pleased with the way we love the person love's aim is that God would be pleased and if God is pleased then that's the most beneficial thing that the person could possibly experience or receive from us I ask the question did Jesus love the Pharisees the answer is yes, of course he did. That's why he challenged them about their sin. He, he was pursuing their repentance so that they could receive God's mercy and grace, God's salvation. And a few of them actually did receive God's salvation because he loved them so. But did Jesus love them the way the Pharisees wanted him to love them? The answer to that question is no. If you ask the, the, the common Pharisee of Jesus, "Day, does Jesus love you? They'd probably say, no, of course he doesn't love us. Love us? He's our enemy. The quality of our love is not determined by how the human recipient grades it. The quality of our love is determined by how God grades it. So we're looking always for his pleasure in the way that we're loving others. So we want to learn more about this love that God calls us to have for each other in the local church. And we're going to look at specifically at verse 4 and just the first little part of verse 4 this morning. That little part simply reads, Love is patient. Love is kind. Paul is going to list 13 more qualities of love. There are 15 in total. Qualities that bring glory to God. But we're going to park on these two simple and very pure qualities this morning. Now it's very important for us to observe the context in order to understand the purpose of Paul's writing 1 Corinthians 13. It's such a lovely, lovely, Lyrical love prose. It's just such a beautiful expression of of love in its wording and its terminology. But it's important for us that we understand these words are written to a local church, a local church like this one, who's having difficulty connecting deeply to each other in loving relationships. There's conflict. There's apathy, there's lack of depth to their relationship, and Paul writes this chapter to this church. These words are not written for a bride and groom to use at their wedding. They're lovely words to use at a wedding, don't get me wrong, but they're not written for that purpose. These words are not written for a a, a physical family to use in in helping uh, children get along with each other, stop quarreling with one another. Great application, that's not why it was written. These words are not written for a church to use as a plea to, to, to help the poor of this world. Again, a great application, not the purpose of why it's written. Paul writes these words this local church because they're failing in this area of love. And because they're failing in this area of love, they're failing in every area. That no area is healthy when this area is lacking. So the first application of 1 Corinthians 13, before we apply these words to Christian marriage, to Christian family, to compassion ministry, is to use this chapter to spur each one of us toward deep loving relationships with other believers in the local church. Now as we begin to look at these first two qualities that Paul lists here regarding love, understand the list is not exhaustive but it's very active. I'm going to ask you to put your Greek glasses on for just a moment The English text doesn't represent this very well because it would be awkward to do so. But every one of these 15 qualities is presented as a present tense verb. It's an action, in other words. So, uh, uh, it it literally would say, love is patienting. That's kind of awkward. That's why it doesn't read it that way. But it's patienting. It's acting in patience. Uh, Love is kinding. It's acting in kindness. We read them as sort of adjectives, but really they're verbs, they're action steps. Paul is pointing us to actions that love presently takes in the life of a believer in the context of the local church. Paul is not giving us a definition of love so much as he's teaching us how love acts, what love does. So if we leave here today and don't take any action to show love for one another, then we're not responding to God's message because they're actions that God's calling us to. If you're a parent and you ask your child, hey, would you take out the garbage uh, tonight? He says, yes, I will. Let me write that down. He takes beautiful notes. He even puts it in calligraphy, sticks it on his wall, meditates on it uh, throughout the afternoon. <laughs> but the morning you go out, the garbage not taken. <laughs> you say, well, wait a minute. No, look, look at that. It's on a poster. I put it there. I memorized it. I've written it down. But, but you didn't do it. You didn't respond to my message. Well, that's exactly right. Unless we're responding to this message with some action, and that's why I want to challenge you, to find some action, then really we've not responded at all to God's word. Love is patient, love is kind. These two qualities are cousins, and yet they're distinct. Patience commands us uh, with the physician's motto, first, do no harm. When you're hurt, don't respond in kind. First, just lay back, don't harm anyone else. Through your attitudes, your words, your actions. Be patient. Kindness on the other commands, do much good. So one is refraining from doing anything that our flesh wants to do in response to people who hurt us that would hinder their eternal joy. Kindness is taking action, taking initiative to do something to pursue another person's eternal joy. Let's first think about this quality, love is patient. What does it mean to be patient? Patience references the peaceful action one takes toward another person who is wronged when one is wronged or provoked or injured by that person. Now again, remember the context is the local church. He's specifically speaking about the way believers relate to one another. And that's important for us because Paul is assuming here that we will be hurt in our relationships in the context of the local church. And he says be patient. In other words, he's saying, assume that others will offend you as you live your life in God's family. Patience bears offenses of others with forbearance toward them. Patience overlooks wrongs that are suffered and endures them. Patience is not defined by what it does so much as what it does not do. Patience refuses to retaliate. It refuses to become bitter. It refuses to act in malice. It refuses to close one's heart to the one who hurt us. It says, I'm going to keep an open heart. I know that I'm vulnerable to being hurt again, but I'm going to keep an open heart. That's what love does. That's what love is. Patience cause us to ask the question, what do I do when I'm Pope? You know, it's easy to love others when they're kind toward me and they're peaceful with me. And that is an easy thing. But the question is, what do I do when someone gossips about me, or disrespects me, or cheats me, or verbally demeans me, or acts unkindly toward me? Then, that's when love is tested. How short is my fuse when I'm abused? I love uh, Proverbs 19:11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Just makes sense to do that. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. You know, our flesh, rather than being patient, it gets frustrated. Rather in refraining from reacting, it reacts in ways through words, actions, attitudes that um, that strike back. And our flesh justifies those impatient actions. Our flesh says things like, "Well, they hit me first. I didn't start it. They started it." Now, Jesus teaches us the virtue of patience in Luke 6. He says, bless those who curse you. This is love. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, also offer to him the other. Now, that's patience. Love's endurance and love's patience are similar. Later, he's going to talk, say, love endures all things. So, endurance references a calm, peaceful response to hurtful circumstances Patience references a calm, peaceful response to hurtful people. So, endurance is when we have circumstances that stir up our soul. Patience is when we have people that stir up our soul toward anger. Remember Job? He responded with both patience as well as with endurance. The storm took the life of children. He had endurance. The thieves took his property. His wife says, Curse God and die. He responded with patience. Job's love was both patient and enduring. Now many of the Greeks of Paul's day didn't think much about this quality of patience. They believed, hey, this is a dog-eat-dog world. If you don't uh, respond in kind, you're going to get devoured. They considered this kind of patience that Paul affirms to be central to love, to be a weakness, uh, to be representative of a spinelessness. Now many in our culture affirm a tough demeanor. A tough demeanor that denies patience. This such a tough demeanor. Well, it's essential to leadership. That's essential to influence in the world. But I want you to think about influence and leadership for a moment. Who is the greatest leader ever to walk this earth? Who is the one who influenced in the greatest, deepest, and profoundest fashion? Of course, the answer is Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus illustrates the glory of patience to us all through his life, and especially toward the end of his earthly ministry in the manner of his death. He bore insult upon insult, injury upon insult, injury, and yet his inner calm, his peacefulness toward his oppressors was never broken. I think of the night in which he was betrayed. He looked at Judas in the garden. He said, friend, do what you came to do. What a patient response. It's not, hey, buddy. buddy. I know what you're here to do. It's friend. Call him friend. Do what you came to do. It's patience. And, and then, he, then, of course, uh, Peter was not so patient with what was taking place. The, the uh, soldiers closed in on Jesus, and Peter drew his sword, and wha! And he didn't care where he was slicing. He was just slicing. He was going to respond to the great insult and grievous uh, oppression that Jesus was experiencing. And he came down on the ear of a servant. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 Peter, put back the sword. Picked up the ear, put it back on uh, uh, the the servant's head. And he said, Peter, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then he asked this question. He says, Peter, do you think that I couldn't appeal to my father and he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Do you think this is happening because these folks have overpowered me is that what you think is happening here even one angel whew, and it would be over so think of the patience of jesus he had the power to actually put these oppressors in their place he had the opportunity and the ability yet what did he do he acted with immense patience you know, our patience is most tested when we do have power and opportunity to retaliate. It's tested when it is in the realm of possibility to take action to, to respond in kind to someone who hurt us so deeply. Now, the people in Corinth didn't love one another with patience. If we turn back to 1 Corinthians 6, we'd find members of Jesus' church using secular law courts to respond in kind to offenses that they had suffered from each other. So, um, one carelessly damaged the car of another, that did it, buddy, I'm taking you to court. That was the response. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why is that? Because the whole purpose of the church is to glorify God. And the moment that we get after each other, The moment we stop loving each other, we take each other to to the court of law to sue each other, God's glory is gone from his people. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another, it's already defeat for you. You've lost your purpose for existing. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In that way, God would be glorified through your loving response. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. uses the family analogy. Now Paul is most concerned here for the name of Christ. He recognizes the lack of patience toward one another in the church in Corinth, throws Jesus' name in the mud publicly before the secular world. The witness of this church is crumbling because of a lack of patience with one another. And God calls us to keep an open heart of love, especially to those who hurt us. The secular world watches still today and gleefully claps when we lack patience with one another in the body of Jesus. Why? Because the glory of Christ is hated by all of God's enemies. The world still hates for Christ to be shown to be preeminent and glorious. And our impatience with each other, it, it, it casts a blanket, a shroud over the glory of Christ in his church. Why is our patience so vital to God's glory? Well, God is glorified when we as believers foresee the greatness and goodness of God. We experience him and enjoy him for who he truly is and all of his perfections. And one of those perfections is his patience. That we can see, wow, God is infinitely patient with me. And we experience that and we rejoice it. And then after having seen the glory of God for ourselves through the gospel, then we're able to be used by God to show his glory to others. And that's why our impatience robs God of his glory. It robs us of our ability to show to others that God is patient when we are impatient with each other in his own family. Listen to Exodus 34. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, how patient God is, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? God acts so patiently with us sinners before meeting out justice. The only reason why any of us are alive is because of God's patience. The only reason why any of us have had time to respond to the gospel is because of God's patience. The Lord gives repeated warnings and constant pleadings to sinful, rebellious creatures of his uh, against whom it would be right for him to execute justice and righteousness immediately. Instead, he restrains his righteous hand. Restrains his righteous hand from acting in justice against rebels who defy his authority and reject his command. He waits and he waits and he waits. He waits until justice demands for him not to wait any longer, but that's his patience. Now, in regard to our patience with other sinners, God does not tell us to set aside the idea of justice. God simply tells us to leave room for his justice. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. So repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, So far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what hinders us from practicing patience with others in the local church? Why is it so hard for me not to enter into some verbal sparring match when another brother or sister insults me or belittles my viewpoint? Why is it so hard for me not to set my jaw against one who injures me through their words? Why is it so hard for me not to close my heart toward them? Why is it so hard to keep an open heart? When someone's hurt me and injured me, why is it difficult when I see them at Sam's Club, and I see them down the aisle, and they don't see me yet, why is it so hard for me not to just go to the other aisle? Why is that hard? Because I need God's love filling my heart not patient and that's why this passage is so very convicting but so very beautiful and helpful to my advance to become like Jesus to be an imitator of God we are forgetful of what great sinners we are so we are shocked that others sin against us have you ever said to yourself or heard another Christian say you know I expected to get hurt by unbelievers I just never expected to get hurt by my brothers or sisters in my own church family have you ever said that or heard others say that? My response is, well, if you've read your Bible, why would you be so surprised about that? Over and over in the New Testament, believers are commanded to forgive one another. That implies that we should expect and assume that others who are yet being sanctified, haven't been glorified yet, haven't become completely like Christ will rub against us in a way where they sin against us, and we'll have to forgive them. The whole of the New testament tells us we ought to expect others in the family of God to act in hurtful ways. Does that grieve the heart of God? Yes, it does. But is it going to happen? Yes, absolutely. So rather than us getting so discouraged and so distraught and, and, and being tempted to do what Satan wants us to do, well, forget the church then. Instead, we prepare our hearts. This is an opportunity for me to imitate God because guess what? I sinned against God and he didn't say, forget Rich Burkle. He continued to love me. And now I've become a worshiper because he did. And maybe, just maybe, if I love that other person who's in the church family, they too will become more like Jesus. That God will use me to, to feed grace into their life, to feed gospel into their life. See, these occasions of being hurt become opportunities to display God's glory and to worship him. Love is patient, but now let's look at this issue, love is kind. Love is not satisfied merely with refraining from hurting others through our attitudes, words, and action, but love moves toward taking action to add joy to others through our words, our attitudes, and our actions. What does it mean to be kind? Showing kindness means we act in giving ways to benefit others who may not benefit us in return. Kindness means that we respond to other believers with a generous heart and an open hand. Kindness actively looks for ways to invest our own time, energy, and resources toward others in Jesus' church so that their life will be richer for it. Again, the context is so important. Paul's encouragement is not a call for us to be kind to those who are in a position to bless us. Paul's encouragement here is not for us to participate in gift exchanges where someone gives me a nice gift at Christmas and I give them a nice gift. That's not kindness. That's exchanging gifts. Kindness is not acting toward people who may be able to benefit me through their friendship or their position or their influence in some way in the future. Kindness is looking at people who we assume, yeah, that person probably would never ever be able to benefit me in this world, and then acting in a way toward them to pursue their eternal happiness. That's kindness. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So the question is, how do I treat others in the church who I don't know very well, who are part of a different circle of friends? How do I treat others in the church who may have ignored me or offended me or cheated me or sinned against me? How do I treat others in the church whom I don't perceive can reward my love at all? We measure our kindness factor by how we act toward those whom we don't know well, toward those whom we don't assume will be able to return anything of earthly blessing here. And kindness, it's such a huge ministry in the, ch- in the church of Jesus. I've been overwhelmed by the many kindnesses that God has given to me through God's people. Ways that are still so deeply profound. Uh, just a few months ago, I-, I was really, really sick. It was one of those kinds of sicknesses where just turning my head over on my pillow for two days straight. Didn't eat anything. I drank a little bit of water. And and top it off, my wife Kimberly had, had uh, gone a couple days earlier to visit her parents in Arizona. So I was all alone. All alone and I had two people call me up and bring me some chicken soup I couldn't eat it because I was hungry but they brought it to me they brought me some Gatorade I could drink that and they brought me some medicine and I'll tell you to this day I'm still impacted by that kindness that they thought of me and they took time to be kind it, it is such such an amazing ministry I, I long for everyone in the body of Christ to experience a ministry of kindness and I hope each one of you have. I pray for that. But even more than you receiving a ministry of kindness, it's even more joyful to give it. And every one of us have access to that joy. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. How, should a per- long, how long should a person be part of a church before they commit to a ministry of kindness to others in the church? So how long should you come here, Bethany community, before you say, okay, God, I'm going to have a ministry of kindness to others in this body. Was it a year? After a year, you say, okay, this is finally my church, so I I should really start being kind to others. Is it a month? I think both of those are too long. The time to begin having a ministry of of, of kindness in the church is the time that you're passionate about the glory of God in the church. So if you come to a local church, and it's your first Sunday, for some of you it might be your first Sunday here. If you come to this church and you say, man, what I care about is that God would be glorified in this church, then today's the day Then you start looking out and say, how can I have a ministry of kindness among this people? I remember his family at uh, 18 years ago, still, still very clear in my memory, uh, came to Bethany. I remember it so well for a number of reasons, one of which is uh, that day was casual Sunday. We, we were very formal, everyone wore suits and ties at that time. And, uh, and this was the day we we're going to have a church picnic. So we said, hey, everybody bring picnic clothes. Well, this family, it was their first Sunday, so they didn't get the memo. And the dad, he was dressed in in this beautiful suit, the wife, beautiful dress, four children, two boys dressed in suits, girls dressed in these beautiful dresses, and they came walking in, new family, sat down close to the front. I thought, oh no, I bet you they feel feeling uncomfortable. And so I wanted to make sure I talked to them and told them a little bit about our culture and how this was a special Sunday and kind of apologized for any discomfort they were experiencing. And uh, I came up to them and and said, hey, you know... uh, I'm uh, so thankful you came, and I wanted to say something just to kind of encourage him. I said, hey, that, that's a really nice tie you have on there. Uh, he was the only one wearing a tie that day. <laughs> that's a really nice tie. You know what he did? He 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 proceeded to take it off, and he put it around my neck. He says, I want you to have this. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't compliment your tie because I was hoping you'd give it to me. He says, I know, I know. He says, but the, but the Lord is directing me to, to give you this tie. And it's a tie. It's a beautiful tie. I still wear it to this day, 18 years later. And so then I followed the family out, and I said, that's a beautiful car you have there. (laughs) I didn't do that, but I was tempted. I was tempted. Um, Now, that family only stayed in church because they ended up having to move back to Michigan about 18 months, but that ministry of kindness was representative of their whole time there, and they changed the culture of our church. One family saying, we're going to have a ministry of kindness, and they changed the culture of a church. Now, I don't know how many of you will take up this message and say, okay, that's going to be me, but if you do, if one person, you'll begin to to change the culture of the people around you for the glory of Christ, that's exciting. Worship is exaltation by imitation. If we do not imitate God in his kindness, we do not worship God in spirit and truth. If we do imitate God in his kindness, we do worship God in spirit and truth. So what hinders us from showing kindness to others in our local church? Uh, Four obstacles that I've considered. One, a lack of determined discipline in our lives. So this is where we want to get very practical. Because again, these are action verbs and it means that we've got to take action if if we're going to receive this message from the Lord. Uh, Many in the church have good intentions, uh, but little execution. So cards are left unwritten or unsent. Words are left unspoken. Visits are left unmade. So the encouragement is, find a way to discipline yourself to prioritize this ministry of love that you would have for others. Find a way to begin to take actions. Again, none none of us are going to be absolutely perfect in our execution of our intentions, but we can find ways in which, which more of those intentions become reality. Second, obstacle lack of spiritual affection for others now this relates more to the heart we say oh, i i really don't think that much about having a ministry of love I, i'm not against the idea i'm just not passionate about it i, I have so many other things that i have to deal with in my life i'm so busy i i can't even begin to start thinking about a ministry of kindness to others or ministry of love um and this is a heart issue and the question is do you really believe what god is is taught here in first corinthians 13 that that if we do everything else that if we don't have love, nothing else we do matters. Do I really believe that? Because that's God's word, what God's Word teaches. Third is the lack of boldness. You know, some of you are shy. You say, I, I don't know if, if others would want me to show them kindness. I don't know if they'll appreciate it. I don't know if they'll receive it. I don't want it to intrude. Fear paralyzes me. From reaching out to others. Love is outward and fear paralyzes me. It keeps me all to myself. I want to tell you, your fear is not from God. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love. Discipline, a sound mind. So as you pursue God, God will sanctify you and God will help you to overcome your shyness. It's probably hard for you to believe, but I I believe I was, was, when I was in high school and college, one of the shyest persons that I still know to this day. And God's changed my heart as he's set me in a context of ministry of love. And I love the liberty that I'm not paralyzed by fear nearly as much as I was. And that's a beautiful thing. Fourth, a lack of passion for God's glory in his church. Some might say, you know, I like showing kindness to others, and I do, but really I, I show kindness so I can receive back in return. Maybe receive back respect, esteem, position, um, reputation, maybe even some other favors in the future. Yeah, it'll keep you really from ministry of love. So the answer, of course, there is, do I see God's glory? and Have I enter into it yet? Am I born again? Do you connect with any of these obstacles? None of them need to paralyze you, uh, although, mo- uh, although all of them could. What a tragedy, what a tragedy not to enter into this great call of God upon our life. So you say, okay, I'm ready to take some action. How do I begin? Again, I just want to close with with some practical encouragements for you. First, enter deeper into the joy of God's love for you. So the first place is between you and the Lord. Love doesn't flow from our own flesh. It never will. Love is produced by God's Spirit in us. We can't manufacture love just as we can't manufacture apples on a tree Uh, any fruit of love is, is fruit that's born by the life of God that's inside of us it's not born because we worked hard to get it and so what do we do to have the Holy Spirit working in us in that way well the Holy Spirit works in us as as we lean into God and enter deeper into his joy into his perfection the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him and so as you enjoy God's love and appreciate his patience and loving kindness to, towards you, your heart will begin to overflow with love. That's the way God works. Secondly, repent of a lack of love in your heart for all God's family. That doesn't mean that you, you, you don't love any in God's family, but that there are some in God's family that you don't love. And whenever that's true, <clears throat> you want to say, this is a grievous sin. It's a great act of witness against the God who loved me while I was yet ungodly, an enemy, and a sinner. It's so easy to casually pass over and say, well, I love almost everybody. There's just a few people I really have trouble loving. And everybody has trouble loving some people. And so it's not that big of a deal. No, it is that big of a deal. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13. It's a really big deal that we would have a lack of love toward any who are in God's family. Third, discipline yourself to pray for God to lead you in loving others. Again, God is in charge of his love that God would excite you for a ministry of love Um, and as you pray God answers prayer isn't that awesome that God is a prayer answering God and this is the kind of prayer this is exactly the kind of prayer he answers so I guarantee if you pray with a sincere heart of faith Lord open up my heart with greater love for you and with for others in your body and, and give me a ministry of love and if you come on a Sunday morning and you come driving here and you say God show me some person that I can express your kindness to today, it will just blast open the doors of your experience at church. Every day you're going to say, I wonder what God's going to do today. There's going to be someone that God sets in front of me that I'm not even aware of right now. He's going to set someone in front of me to show an act of kindness. It's going to, he is going to be ministering through me. And that's what's so exciting about church. It's one of the things that's so exciting about church. So let's pray that way, right? And finally purpose to act upon God's promptings trust God to give you strength and boldness engage your will our will is the ignition switch of our soul if our will doesn't engage our actions our good intentions have no value Jesus says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you that you also are to love one another by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. if you have love for one another, love is patient. love is kind. Father in heaven, we commit our way to you today. We ask, O oh God, that if anyone is here who has not experienced the great love that you have for them in Jesus. I pray, O oh Father, that they would, that they would have their hearts opened to your love and receive your love through Jesus, that they would believe in Jesus as their Savior right now where they are and come to know you. Be reconciled to you through faith in your Son, Jesus. Thank you for loving us when we were yet sinners and while we were yet enemies, while we were yet rebels, so that we could be your children. Thank you. And now, Father, as you've set your love upon us, I pray, O Father, that your love would flow through us. And that we would bring you glory by the way that we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.